When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Shadow Courts edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion. I'm joined, as always, by Kathy O'Neill, the author of Weapons of Math Destruction. I'm here. I'm so happy to be here. Find it. Oh, and you were recently shortlisted for something fabulous. Long-listed. Long-listed. Uh, not short-listed. But yes, I was extremely you, you happy. You get a silver medal. Yeah. Whatever. I'll take it. The National Book Award for Nonfiction. National Book Award for Nonfiction, which means it's a good book. Um, that's how I know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's like, great. We, we weren't entirely sure. We all enjoyed reading it, but we don't trust our own. <laughs> no. No. Why know, would we? We, 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 li- we wait for the National need, Book Award We need external measures us. of success. Exactly. And talking of books, we are also joined by Haley Edwards, who has written a book. It's one of those wonderful short books. If you remember a while back, we had Bethany McLean on talking about Fanny and Freddie, mm-hmm. and we were gushing about how awesome it was that yeah. her book was short and readable. And this is another oh short God. and readable I got this book. last night, and I, I'm done. I it's read it. Amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. It's, and it's one of, one of those books you can just... <laughs> In the sitting. <laughs> I mean, I felt like underlining every word of every page. So that's that's a good sign. Oh, thank you. So, Haley, yeah, you are something something with Time Magazine. Yeah, I'm a policy correspondent with Time Magazine. And you are also the author of? Shadow Courts. The tribunals that rule global trade. Bum, bum, bum. Because all nonfiction books need subtitles. Always. Even if they're short. The good Always. ones do. The good ones do. <laughs> and the bad ones. <laughs> they all have, like, I keep, one day we're going to have a, a author on the show who doesn't have a subtitle, and we're going to be like, why is your subtitle? <laughs> How do we know what the book is really about? Exactly. So anyway, we are going to talk about Haley's book. We are going to talk about congestion pricing, which is one of my favorite subjects. And we are going to talk about active management as mm-hmm. well, because... Mm-hmm. Also one of your favorite s- subjects. Also one of my favorite su- subjects. Um, but yeah, we may as well, since Haley is here. Oh, and by the way, I, we should probably mention that there's a void in yeah, the room. Yeah, it's very sad. He's in the eye of a hurricane. So we're Jordan, if you're listening to this, keep hunkered down in Florida and try and try and stay alive so Don't that you go can swimming. come back Mm-mm. next week on Slate Money. Haley, tell tell me about this book and why you wrote it. Well, Shadow Courts is about a mechanism buried in almost every trade agreement and bilateral investment treaty. Um, called Investor State Dispute Settlement. And you'll almost always hear that just shorthand, ISDS. Um, and I 
decided to write this book because I found out about ISDS. I was just reading the internet. And I read about it, and I thought that can't possibly exist. Can we? Can we? Can we just get right to the sexy, nasty cartoon villains of the situation? Can we talk about the cigarette companies, the oil companies, the polluting? Okay, companies? so there is a there is a vague news hook here, which I'm going to. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, I don't know if you guys saw this, but Chad recently, like this week, fined Exxon Mobil seventy four billion dollars plus. $819 million in, in royalties for breaking Chadian law or something or not mm-hmm. breaking. But because I mean, it's not exactly a robust state. Anyway, Chad decided that they were going to fine ExxonMobil eight, eight, $74 billion, which, by the way, is um, five times their GDP. Wow. Um, and the obvious reaction to that is, uh, what? You know? And so there are ways in which companies can sort of appeal these things in supranational um, tribunals. So we, we like these investor-state dispute tribunals and the inter- International Center for the Settlement of Investment Disputes and all of these places because they help put these poor benighted comp- companies on an equal footing with those evil countries. And that's more or less your book, right? <laughs> That's a really interesting case, the Chadian one. I mean, uh, Kathy referred to the 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 tobacco companies earlier, which is another way of looking at this, and also a uh, was mentioned on the John Oliver show. So it's the one that if anyone has heard of ISDS, is this is the one that they've heard of. It's Philip Morris used investor state dispute settlement, these supranational tribunals, to challenge Australia's decision to pass anti-smoking laws um, that would require basically putting, you know, brown paper around cigarette cartons um, and limiting the amount of advertising you can do in the country. They passed this law. The tobacco companies challenged it. It went all the way up to the Australian Supreme Court. Um, They decided that it was constitutional. And then Philip Morris went outside of the Australian courts to challenge it through the supranational tribunal to say that, in fact, bypassing that law, Australia had more or less expropriated Philip Morris's intellectual property. Wow. And they were demanding, you know, X hundreds of millions of dollars in. So basically, if you try to protect your people from us, you have to pay us the money that we would have made from hurting those people. I mean, we should jump in here and say they lost. They should. They did. Lo- they did lose. And good. Oh, good. Yes, and that and that was this big case, and this and that gets into a lot of the politics of these. You know, that case actually got attention from the Western media. Um, another case that's getting attention from the Western media is um, after Barack Obama canceled the Keystone XL pipeline last November, um, the Canadian company that was going to build that pipeline then used ISDS under NAFTA to challenge the U.S. outside of U.S. courts on the grounds that that cancellation in some way violated okay. its... so here's the question. Are you, is this a good thing or a bad thing? That is actually a great question because the way that I frame it in the book is it basically started out as a good thing. It started out doing what protecting investors operating in countries where there was rickety rule of law and unreliable court systems, and they wanted to go invest in places like Pakistan or Chad or Venezuela. And they weren't going to do that unless there were 
external protections. That was the idea in the 1950s and 60s when this came around. Um, and that was also a period of, you know, rapid nationalization and expropriations and, and communist regimes were, were, were gaining power all over the place and just expropriating Western investors, factories and oil fields and things like so that. So basically it was created in the, the – like kind of to try to tell – other companies, like foreign companies, come invest in our country, and we won't it w- we won't get away with just taking over your company once you've set it up. Exactly, and it was also it had this kind of world peace side to it, where um, you know Jimmy Carter was actually very in favor of this in the late seventies because he would see American corporations getting into tussles basically with Latin American countries, and he wanted there to be a an avenue in which the corporation and the and the sovereign nation could go up against each other in a peaceful venue and not and the US wouldn't be dragged in there wouldn't no, be the, no more gunboat diplomacy exactly the proverbial gunboats in the in the in the harbor which happened in Venezuela and in various places absolutely so the, one of the fascinating things that you lay out in the book is just how these things actually work and how they are uh, basically very very shitty so i mean so, I'm, so yeah so I'll name how a few do we of them. get how do we get from Good thing to very, very shitty. Like, this is the thing which I don't understand. It's a very bad uh, design. I I mean, I'm going to just mention a few characteristics of these ISDS courts. There's three people. Um, There's an asymmetry of who can start one of these cases. Like, basically, the companies can start them against the countries, but the countries can't can't do the opposite. It's low cost for those companies. Um, They could do, like, basically copies of the same case, and they sometimes win and they sometimes lose. And there's no way of sort of understanding how you take those two decisions and make them consistent. And, and, and in fact, the decisions are very, very inconsistent. So, I mean, to sum it up, it's like you have this um, inconsistent and arbitrary system, which is trying to, like, prevent internal countries' laws from being inconsistent and arbitrary. But, but okay, so, again, I'm just going to be, like, the, the devil's advocate here, and I'm going to say all judicial systems are inconsistent and arbitrary. Like, there is no court in the world which can't be accused of being inconsistent and arbitrary. And yes, you know, it, there is a certain asymmetry in that if the company is suing the country, it happens in this court. But if the country is suing the company, obviously, they're going to do it in their own courts. So I you think know. this is like a really important point, because it, it's, you're absolutely right that every judicial system in the world is inconsistent. The U.S. judicial system is, is wildly inconsistent a lot of the time. But it's an institution. And there's an appellate mechanism. And judges are full-time judges for life. And there's rules governing conflict of interest. And if two courts disagree with one another, there's a mechanism through which they recognize Reconcile those decisions. This, what we're talking about here, is international, is supranational binding arbitration before a private tribunal. So the three people who determine whether or not Australia's tobacco regulations, in fact, violate investor treaties, are are you know corporate lawyers. They're private individuals. I think the real problem here is not so much the courts and the tribunals who have a very, very tough job to do and, you know, sometimes do it well and sometimes do it badly so much as it's the way in which um, free trade agreements are negotiated under the sort of auspices of, like, thousands and thousands of corporate lobbyists who are just inserting all manner of clauses into these into these various bilateral investment treaties and multilateral investment treaties and no one else really get and it's very hard for the individual countries to say no that's stupid 
especially when the United States, which gets to drive a lot of these free trade agreements, um, is really pushing a bunch of IP protections and things like that, which no one else really wants in there, but the U.S. won't sign it unless they're in there. Well, and this is something that I, you know, I wrote this book last fall before we really thought Trump was going to be a candidate, before we, before the Brexit vote, before um, there was this kind of, we're seeing this like massive you know, right-wing populist backlash. Before Hillary Clinton came out against TPP. Before Hillary Clinton, exactly. So there's, I wrote it at a time when I, it was kind of a different context. And now I feel like, you know, the lady doth protest too much, where it's like, this isn't actually about trade. What we're talking, investor state dispute settlement is not actually about trade in any way. The first time that it was included in a free trade agreement wasn't until the 1990s. It wasn't until NAFTA. And like this, so we, we started off talking about like this start, this was a good idea in the 1950s and 60s. There were basically so no it, claims. What was it include? Where, where, where was it put, if not in a trade sit agreement in the 50s and 60s? In bilateral investment treaties. Aren't those trade treaties? No. They're investment. Ah. Yeah, they're, they're entirely designed to protect investors and to, and to basically establish the rules for how investors will be treated in two countries. So they're bilateral. Um, and those are just much smaller bore agreements. And it wasn't until the 1990s that someone gets this this great idea. Hey, let's just take that entire BIT and let's just wedge it into a chapter of NAFTA and CAFTA and TPP and TTIP and every other massive trade agreement coming down the pike. You do a great example um, in the middle of the book. Um, about right as NAFTA starts being enforced, that um, you see that it goes directly um, from the idea that you should be treating foreign companies fairly to you should be compensating foreign companies for possible future profit loss. Exactly. That's a real like shift. And this is what this is. This is the great narrative that I've been trying to, you know, harp on is that you, you have this idea like let's protect foreign investors property abroad. Fine. Great. But there were no cases for 30 or 40 years. Well, there were 40 cases in 40 years. You know, they, they didn't really happen from about 1960 to 2000. This mechanism was basically never used. It wasn't until it was inserted into NAFTA and then began being inserted into these multinational trade agreements that you saw. It's kind of like I imagine it like the cartoon um, light bulb going off above the legal community's head. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden it was like, holy shit. We yeah. have this incredible mechanism that but allows how? us to challenge sovereign nations outside of their court system. So, so here's the question. I mean, obviously, um, companies are very wary of suing sovereign nations inside that sovereign nation's court system because they will always lose. So they're like, okay, so you know, we'll, we'll sue them outside. That makes sense. And my general feeling about f- f- trade agreements is that multilateral is better than bilateral. Right. And that bilateral is like a kind of crappy way of excluding countries and multilateral is a kind of good way of including countries. And if you structure the multilateral treaties in such a way that they basically, they're like bilateral treaties, but including lots of countries rather than just two, that's a good thing. The question I have for you is, has any company actually won a case, one of these tribunals where they got awarded profits that they would have made had the law not been passed. Yes. Yes, they have. And this is this gets in about the 90 late 90s or early 2000s this idea of legitimate expectations was first introduced by tribunals. And this is again there's no jurisprudence. This is just three individuals to 
looking at treaties and interpreting extremely vague language because what was written into these treaties in the in the 60s and 70s, no one really thought it would ever be litigated. There wasn't even an infrastructure on the international stage through which a corporation would challenge a sovereign nation. It didn't exist. The ICSID that you referred to before didn't exist. So it was the idea that these were actually legal documents didn't occur to anybody. So the way that they're written now is basically like, you know, Felix, Felix Estan, you agree to treat Haley Corporation with, uh, you know, fair and equitable treatment. You you agree to give me fair and full protection. That sounds great. But what the hell does that actually mean once you have three people looking at this? And so beginning in the late 90s, you saw you saw people that uh, these arbitrators saying, anytime you violate my expectations of what it would be like to invest in your country, that's a violation of these investment treaties or this investment provisions. And anytime I, um, you know, you pass, if I invest in your country in a certain umbrella of regulations under a certain tax code, and then you get a new administration in that changes those things, those violate my expectations of what I thought life would be like while investing in your country. And the example is from Argentina, right? So Argentina is a really interesting example, and I think gets to a lot of these questions of what do we mean when or what's the meaning of local rule and federalism in this international world? Um, another case that I write about in the book, I mean, I write about Argentina, I write about Ecuador, I write about Czech Republic. There are a lot of different cases. Um, but you have in Argentina, you have this massive financial crisis. No one's going to say that the Argentinians behaved that well. Right. You know, I, I believe the I believe the word is contumacious. <laughs> We've used that before. Argentina is I, I don't like as regular listeners to Slate Money will know is my favorite subject yeah, in the world. And we have talked up. about Argentina a lot. And actually, Argentina is a fascinating case because it's one of the few cases where Argentina was itself was actually taken to court, not to one of these tribunals, but to, you know, the, the Second Circuit in New York and lost. So this actually gets to one of your questions you asked before. You know, what are, what are corporations supposed to do when they go invest in a country like, uh, you know, Argentina or Venezuela or Ecuador or, or you know, you name it, where they don't want to rely on the local court systems? Because relying on the local court system in Ecuador, not smart. Right. But you have um, – so another alternative to that is that you do as that – as, you know, the hedge funds did when they wrote – when they signed contracts with Argentina, they said – if there's any dispute, we're hearing it in, in New York courts. And another thing is if you have these the, – you, you basically don't necessarily need these supranational tribunals that are only designed for, for corporations in order to have extrajudicial protections for those corporations. That brings me to the like most important question for me, which is that – um, these TPP and the TTIP, they all have this ISDS stuff, and they're all basically secretly negotiated by corporations, and we hate them as as good liberals. Anyway, I do. I'm raising my hand. Um, the question becomes, then, is there like a better way to have international treaties? And maybe this is similar to what Felix was saying, but like, can we get, can we have like labor represented there? I feel like, or the general public good, because I feel like one of the issues here and all these examples is like these corporations are like, what about my rights? And there's, there's like very little pushback because there's no, there's no space for the rights of the, of the public. Yeah. So there, in other words, is it is it like badly designed and like badly populated or is it just this is a terrible idea? 
it's I mean you're kind of you're you're walking up to one of the really interesting intellectual debates going on in the sort of ivory tower of how we talk about trade right now, which is that these deals are not about trade in any traditional sense of the word. And um you know you have and that really is new too. That's in the last 25 years. So it used to be that trade agreements were to be about tariffs and quotas, right? They were about the movement of goods and services across more borders more quickly. That was the entire idea of free trade. Beginning in about the 1990s, free trade agreements became about intellectual property on, on biologics. They became about trafficking of exotic animals. They became about child labor laws. They, be- they became about – they turned into these massive – tomes that were all about global rulemaking. And I think that that's why we're seeing a lot of this backlash right now, that you're not – or a lot of this kind of shifting political relationship to trade agreements because you can quibble over whether or not there should be a you know seven-year exclusivity or a 12-year exclusivity on certain pharmaceuticals in ways that you wouldn't argue over whether there should be, you know, a a, A tariff on bananas, a tariff on bananas. Exactly. And so we're just we're talking about different things. And ISDS is such a great example of that, because it's not about trade. It's it's about a a supranational judicial system that is designed to protect corporate property rights abroad. It's about risk. Like who is who's who's on the hook for this risk? Yes. And that actually gets to this point that I that I think is so important that, you know, you mentioned like good liberals opposing these trade agreements. Well, you actually this is not you're you have backlash from it on the conservative side as well. And conservative and specifically around ISDS, you have the traditional conservatives, the Tea Party folks who really are suspicious of ISDS on the grounds that it's an imposition on U.S. sovereignty. Why are we allowing TransCanada, a a foreign company, to challenge a U.S. executive action outside of the U.S. court systems? What's wrong with our court systems? So that's one problem. The libertarians are opposed to it, deeply opposed to it, on the grounds that it acts as a, you know, international subsidy for outsourcing because it's it's about risk. Like if you're going to be Apple, you're Apple and you're going to go invest in, in China, you know that there's a lot of risk that goes along with that. But Apple doesn't have any ISDS protections. There's no treaties between the U.S. and China that includes ISDS protections. And they're going in there anyway because they're willing to assume that risk. The market is big enough. And then you have the liberals who are opposed to it, the Elizabeth Warrens, the Bernie Sanders. You know, Tim Kaine came out against it. The, it's, in, it's now embedded in the democratic platform that you know we should be concerned about ISDS on the grounds that it is a way to challenge sovereign nations' regulations outside of that sovereign nation's court system. So you you it's we're talking we're not talking about trade agreements in in the way that our grandparents would or, or even our parents. Okay, so that's the book. It's called Shadow Courts: The Tribunals That Rule the World. Haley Sweetland Edwards. Find it in all good bookstores, and maybe you'll understand why Britain voted to leave the EU. No, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day. That's three percent on your favorite products at Apple. Two percent on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So let's move on to something completely different, which is an international trade merger. 
where you get two big financial services companies. In Europe, you have this thing called Henderson. And in the US, you have this thing called Janus. And they've decided they're going to merge. And there's a bunch of different things going on here. Um, we can talk a little bit in a minute about the whole concept of active management, that these are active managers and they're being sort of squeezed by the passive management revolution, which we all love. And so our hearts are bleeding for them, not much. No, but also, no. I, need to, I need to just start off with this. The reason why the financial press loves this merger so much, um, or one of the reasons, it's because Janus is famous as the place where Bill Gross went after he got fired by PIMCO. And he was running hundreds of billions of dollars, or if not trillions of dollars, at PIMCO. And now he has like one billion of his own dollars at Janus. And he's just and like he's this still like crazy person. He's still in trouble with, with those guys too. Well, right? he keeps on trying to sue them. And they're like, oh, this, yeah. is, this is ridiculous. He's trying to sue them for like wrongful dismissal and stuff. And it's crazy. Gosh, gosh. And he, he, it turns out in the litigation, like this is why you should never sue anyone because in the litigation, <laughs> you get discovery. And in the discovery, it was revealed that from Barry Ritholtz at Bloomberg View that Bill Gross was being paid $300 million a year. Oh, that the God. person who leaked that to Barry Ritholtz was Bill Gross. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. Full so, circle. The egos so, are crazy. So crazy, you know octogenarian like bond madman bill gross has now been bought <laughs> by um a relatively sane company in england called henderson Haley, yeah what, what do you make of this is this is this the sign that all of these companies are doomed because they're doing something which no one wants which is charging lots of money for um active management which always winds up underperforming yeah i mean that I think that the number I saw most recently was from Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, that $200 billion uh, investors yanked out of active management and put into passive management. So that's a, that's a record-breaking number. And um, and I think that, you know, you're going to see the, the Bill Grosses of the world are, are you know. Can we just define our terms here just just briefly? Because I, I actually think I'm going to defend active management. Whoa. Says the former hedge fund employee. <laughs> Um, but I have to make sure I understand what my terms are. What? Are, what? How would you define passive management? Passive is where you just buy the index and sit on it. So which index? So it's that's a very good question. It's this important. Is, this is a um, this is very easy in equities. Um, you can more or less pick your benchmark. Often right. it's the S and P five hundred, but right. there are a million different passive. You can buy any index. You can buy an index of all stocks which begin with the letter A if you want. It doesn't need to represent the market. But what as do people actually do? But what they do is they just the the point about passive management is it's a sort of set it and forget it strategy. You 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 decide what you're going to buy on day zero. You then buy that, and if you want to invest more money, you buy more of that. And then you never trade, you never think, oh, that's expensive, I'm going to sell that. And that's cheap, I'm going to buy that. You just re retain that exact asset allocation you walk in away. perpetuity. Okay, until you, you don't think Here's about a, it. The argument for passive management, which we've made, and I agree with, is that, you know, as individuals, we're not going to beat the market. And if we hand our money over to someone who's trying to beat the market, they're going to charge us a lot, and they're also not going to beat the market. So it's it's bad in both of those possible. The alternatives are bad. So we do this. The the argument, my anti passive management argument, is completely different. Right? I want to look at the world of investments. You know, like what needs money, 
and and should we give money to companies to give them money so that they can grow? And the answer is, yeah, probably we should give money to the to companies in general. It's a good thing for the economy at large. But then the question becomes, which companies deserve our money? And my problem is this idea that we have this set index, S&P 500, which means that so many people are sending all their retirement money, say, not all of it, but a large portion of it, to these 500 companies, which privileges those 500 companies over all the other companies. Mm. And when and when we have so many people putting their money into passive management, as we're seeing more and more, then we have more and more of this privilege going to these specific 500 companies and not to the sort of world of all companies. And I understand that in theory. Mm-hmm. Um, but in practice... I I don't buy it for this reason, which is that when you buy the S&P 500, you are not sending your money to the S&P 500 companies. The S&P 500, if you spend $1,000 on an S&P 500 index fund, exactly zero of that $1,000 makes its way to the companies in question. It's not like they all get $2 each. 100% of your money goes to the people you bought the stocks from. So this is a secondary market. It's not a primary market. The people that you're buying it from are the people who were invested in the S&P 500 before you. And then eventually, at some point in the future, you will sell that fund and oh, the, that's, the, I don't the really stocks will go to that. someone else. But let me finish, which is the way that, that there's a second order effect, which is that you know if a, if a bunch of people are buying the S&P 500, then that means those stocks, those stocks are going to be more expensive relative, relative to non-S&P 500 stocks. And that, um, you know, that the cost of equity capital for those stocks is going to be lower and that those companies are going to have an advantage. And so the way we can judge whether this is happening is by looking at like the PE ratios for the S&P 500 or the cost of equity capital for the S&P 500 and compare it to the cost of equity capital for companies which are not in the S&P 500 and say, do the S&P 500 companies have an obvious advantage here? And when you do that, the answer is no, not really. They, you know, there's no particular evidence to suggest that just by being entered into this select group of companies, you suddenly get like a competitive advantage. Let me ask you this. And you make a good point about how when I buy S&P 500 stock, it's not going to the company. But at some point, companies enter the stock market, right? And then when they, they IPO. When yeah. they IPO. And do they never issue new stock? I and mean, then sometimes they, okay. they issue new equity, yeah. So the, my so it's still true that you know people who are passively investing and not never ever looking at their investments are not the ones who are like looking at these new IPOs and judging them and deciding to put money on them. So in other words it is it's funneling money away from new new other companies that are not already in that and, position. And not only other companies. I mean I think you would make the argument that it's that you can be more ethical in your investments. Yeah. yeah. You could actually have an, an opinion, right? This, I mean, and look, I'm, again, I, I don't think for an individual I'm arguing against it. I'm just saying, like, if everyone does the same thing, like, then then we're not actually the, – the, the market as a whole is supposed to actually serve a function. A capital allocation function. Yes. And passive, ac- passive investment does not serve the capital allocation function. Okay. That, that's we're, we're absolutely in agreement. true. But this is one of the most common and also one of the most frustrating arguments against passive investment is this – slippery slope argument which says well if everybody did it right. then we would be in some bad place i do it by the way and the <laughs> and the question is what degree of um investment would you need in order to get to that bad place how much of the stock market would need to be passive investment before the capital allocation started getting screwed up before like the 
you know, the price arbitrage has started going away because so much money was just dumb and there wasn't enough, there weren't enough arbitrage shares. My view, you would need passive investment to be somewhere north of 95% of the stock market. Mm. Right now, it's not even close to being half of the stock market. Right. We're a very, very long way away from yeah. this being I'm not, a problem. I'm not saying we're about to hit that point either. I think it's also just a part of human nature. Like, I don't, I mean, people are always going to be like, oh, I have this, there's this company that I heard about that it's, that's, it's going to be great and it's going to be the next you know, fill in the blank. There's always going to be the people rolling the dice out there wanting to play that game. I don't I don't think that that's a major risk. I think from an individual standpoint, you have an 85% chance of, of, you know, keeping track, keeping up with the index if you do passive investment. And if you if you spend all this money on fees and stuff, I think you have a 14% chance of actually beating it. You know, I mean, it's tiny. It doesn't make sense from from grandma who's like, you know, investing her portfolio. I'll just make one last stupid comment, which is that, you know, as people enter the passive investment thing, the market will go, the S&P 500 index will go up because more and more people are buying it. Doesn't, no, I, I just don't think that's true. Why, how is that not because true? Because it will get arbed away because you only need a tiny percentage of the market to do the active arbitrage of the S&P 500 against the rest of the market. And no, and that will... But the, the dumb money is very, very slow. The, the, the amount of money that goes into passive management is large on an absolute level. But in terms of actual trades in the stock market, mm-hmm. it's very low because it's one trade. I go in there, I buy the stock, I sit on the stock, I never buy it again, I never sell it again. So the overwhelming majority of the trades on the market, and remember it's the trades on the market every day which are setting the price, the overwhelming majority of those trades are active managers, even though, even if you have a majority of investors are passive, a majority of the traders are always going to be active, and it's the traders who are setting the price, not the investors. I'm going to think about that, but I don't think I agree with you. (laughs) (laughs) We'll come back. We will come back. We will revisit active management at some <laughs> some later um, edition of Slate Money. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Now? I want to jump in before jump in. you even say anything. Kathy, talk to me. I, You know where I was last week? Where were you last week? I was sitting in a cab in London. That's a bad move. <laughs> I had a hotel at Charing Cross on the Strand in London, which is literally the busiest street I've ever seen. It's a parking lot. It's a parking Wait, lot. It is actually used as a parking lot. Weirdly, that the, the traffic <laughs> management system in London is incredibly sophisticated. Yeah. And at the bottom of the Strand is the world's biggest and most complex roundabout called Trafalgar Square. Mm-hmm. And That's where it was. The, um, and the people who are in charge of traffic in London have very very fine control over how much traffic enters Trafalgar Square to make sure that the traffic in Trafalgar Square always keeps on moving. You don't, you don't want gridlock in Trafalgar Square. And the way they control that is by basically backing up traffic on the Strand yep. and letting it into Trafalgar Square very, very slowly because they're ha- much happier with the Strand being a parking lot than with Trafalgar Square being a parking so lot. So it's like a remote control he- like traffic hell they have situated. And, and Kathy, not realizing this, got 
the bright idea into her head that the best way to go down the strand would be oh, to sit in a no, cab. I totally realize it. Here's here's what and this is like this like harkens back to the our discussion of like auto driving cars and what will happen in the future. What happened was I knew how long it was going to take me to get to the Guardian, right, from my hotel where I was doing a podcast. So I actually not only got coffee for the ride, but I organized a, like, interview on the phone at the same time. <laughs> like, it was basically my temporary office. And how long did it take? It took 45 minutes. And it, you could walk it in less than that. I could have walked faster, but I was like, then where would I put my coffee? <laughs> like, it, like, it is a lifestyle. And it's it's incredible, and you know, obviously, it shouldn't happen. I should have taken the tube, obviously. But I mean, my point being, like, why aren't they just like charging me so much for this that it's just not worth it? To well, me? how much was your cab ride? I have no idea. It was paid for by my, my publisher. <laughs> but were you in the black cab? Yeah. So if you were in the black cab, that cab ride, I'm going to guess, would have been well over fifty bucks. Wow. And that's crazy. And they are charging you for this. And this is part of Not what enough, we call though. congestion pricing. Um, the, taxis have always had congestion pricing. The, the longer it takes you to get from point A to point B, the more you pay in cab fare. And so the more traffic there is, the higher the cab fare goes up. The higher the cab fare goes up, the less demand for cabs there is. And so the more traffic the more traffic there is, the more demand goes down. And that's exactly the pricing mechanism that is meant to work. And then what London did was it extended that pricing mechanism, not just to cabs, which have always had it, but also to private cars in general. That if you wanted to drive, if you want to drive a private car in central London on weekdays during you know business hours, you have to pay this congestion charge. And they implemented this a few years ago. And the amount of traffic congestion in London fell, and it also raised a bunch of cash, which was useful, which they could reinvest in buses. Um, and so everyone was like, yay, this is the great solution to all of our problems, congestion pricing. And then Mike Bloomberg tried to introduce it in uh, New York City and failed because of Albany politics, but that's a whole other thing. Um, and everyone sort of looked at um, Stockholm, which has it, and uh, Wait, hold Singapore. Hold on a second. You're... you're you're missing the fact that it's terrible traffic in London. Okay, so then, so, so that was it. So, so rewind maybe three or four years ago, and I wrote a big piece for Wired about congestion pricing and why it was such a great thing. And there's this guy in New York called Charlie Komenoff who's wonderful, who will literally put massive, the biggest spreadsheet you've ever seen together, like proving how wonderful congestion pricing is. And then you go to London and you realize that on the face of it, it has utterly, utterly failed. And there were actually, because part of congestion pricing involves doing something which people never used to do before, which would take very, very accurate measures of how much congestion there is in various bits of the city at various times. And you've done that in London. And now, right now, there is more congestion than ever in London. Wait, but why is that? I'm so glad you asked. Hey. <laughs> the answer is not... Okay, the, the answer which people thought before they actually looked at what was going on, was the drivers became inured to the congestion charge. The what would happen is that congestion would go down because everyone would be like, I'm not paying six pounds to go into London. And then 
eventually, after paying six pounds a couple of times, people would realize that the sun rose the following morning and they would rather pay six pounds than like not be able to drive. And so they'd start paying six pounds and then congestion would go back up. And then the way to solve this problem would be to raise the charge to 10 pounds. Like, oh, I'm not paying 10 pounds to go to London. <laughs> I can't I can't get over how good a, a London person yeah. you can do. It's an incredible impression. <laughs> um, so, but that's not actually what happened. Huh. In fact, if you look at the number of private cars in London, to a first approximation, it's zero. And all of the traffic is people getting deliveries to their office. Yeah. It's buses. It's um, taxis. It's all of the commercial traffic, which cities need. And then – so that's half of it. And then the other half is nimbyism. Yeah, I saw that. Which is – Fascinating because there are actually lots of streets in London. But what happens is there are streets which people live on. And the people who live on those streets go, I don't want a lot of traffic on this street. <laughs> and so they cut off one end of the street. And so no cars drive down that street. It just becomes a sort of residential muse. It is, is really, really nice to walk in It's London. lovely to walk around. But most of the streets huh, in London don't have any traffic on them at all because they don't go anywhere. And so because of all of this nimbyism and people closing off their streets that they live on, there are very few streets that you can actually drive on to get you from A to B. And those streets also are the streets where the people are riding the bus lanes and the bike lanes. So the number of line, lanes for cars has mm-hmm. gone down, and there's just massive congestion. Yeah. So maybe, I mean, this is slightly off topic, but I think this every time I'm in New York where you have these these giant delivery trucks blocking an entire street for, you know, 30 minutes during in the middle of the day or during the middle of rush hour or something like that. Are there is there any city that actually implements laws forbidding that? So Most you have to do- European cities forbid that. This is a very simple law which is incredibly easy to implement, where you just say that any truck over a certain weight cannot drive on city streets between the hours of eight PM eight AM and five PM. So easy to do that. But So why don't we have that here? But, but the you know that violates, you know, your inalienable American right to get your Amazon <laughs> delivery same day. Right. Okay. So Yeah, and it's not really the big things. I mean, like, the, I was on a three-lane road where, like, there was a, two FedEx trucks parked next to each other. I'm like, could one of you move to the front? Um, you know, like, that happens all, all the, the time, time in New York. Right. I think, you know what I think we should do in New York? I think we should charge 20 bucks for congestion and also close half the streets. Because it's actually a better city. London is great, you, as long as you're willing to walk or bike. So, and, this is, and this is actually, I think, the exact correct conclusion, is that, yes, congestion is bad in London. And if, you want, if you're foolish enough to want to try and take a private car or a taxi from Trafalgar Square to King's Cross, then God help you. Yeah. But the city actually works very well if you don't do that. And... The vast majority of people in London don't do that, and it works fine for those people. And in New York, Andrew Cuomo, the governor, has has now announced that he wants to set up this new system, which is basically the precursor to congestion pricing in New York City. And it will make things better. It will make things work worse for car drivers, and yep. it will make things better for everyone else. And I think that's okay. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I got really interested in the idea of um, – how what the economic impact of congestion was um, in the wake of of Bridgegate, of course, um, of course. and um, I don't know what it is in in London or the UK in general, but here in the US, it's that 
people lose about 38 hours a year sitting in traffic. Oh, the okay. average, the average con- con- It's higher commuter. than that for any, anyone who dares to drive in New York. Um, the one thing which, I, which we have to mention here is this only works if there is an alternative to driving. You couldn't do this in most of the cities in the U.S. because most of the cities, in, you can't do it in Miami because there's no public transport in Miami. So if you implement congestion pricing in Miami, right. all that happens is that the people who need to drive somewhere now can't afford to do that anymore. There's an and amazing essay, I think in the, in the Atlantic, I'll get the link, um, about the traffic in Bangladesh. Where yeah. Oh, in Dhaka. Yeah. Oh, my God. It was epic. Yeah. yeah, Bangladesh is just one big traffic jam. Basically. <laughs> it's incredible. There's also, I mean, that's that's also a big political discussion. I lived down in Seattle for a long time, um, and the traffic is terrible, and it's terrible crossing the, the the big lake there, like Washington. And there's always this push and pull of like, you know, do we do we build five more lanes so that you can get traffic across? And then people say no, because then we'll have five more lanes worth of cars in the city. What we need is the, yeah. The answer is never building more roads. Right. This this no, but this has been proven empirically time and time again, which is that traffic expands to fill the number of lanes available. It's called induced demand. Hmm. And if you build more roads, you do not reduce the amount of traffic. This has been tried over and over again, and it never ever works. Right, exactly. And that's like, you know, the 38 hours a year sitting in traffic, that includes everybody all over. That includes, you know, folks in Kansas and, and Alaska. So, yeah, I'm sure that in, in New York and other, other places. But if you actually look at the monetary cost of that through not only pollution, but, but fuel and, and loss of productivity and things like that, I mean, it's we're talking about like billions of dollars a year. And it also helps explain why urban centers are becoming priced out of reach for most people because people will pay astonishing premiums to be able to live somewhere where they don't need to sit in traffic for an hour to get to work. I'd do that. I'd pay any amount not to sit in traffic. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's move on to the numbers round because this is the best bit of the show. I've got a number. What's your number? 6%. I had to jump in because I was like, someone else is going to take my number. My number was not 6%. Okay. So did you know that the pound dropped 6% in overnight trading? Some kind of mini flash crash. Did you hear about this? So this is this is a fascinating story. Um, the pound is astonishingly weak. It's at a 31-year low. It's floating around 123, 124 right now, which is crazy. Well, you know, I'm... I remember when there were two dollars to the pound, or like normally there's around like one sixty, one seventy. Now it's in the one twenty. It went down to one eighteen. It crashed down to one eighteen for just a what, like thirty seconds. Yeah, right? Right, it didn't. Right, it yeah. didn't take. It wasn't there for very long. It went down. It went back up, and there's this weird feeling in the markets that this is a bad thing. And that, like, it's bad for the pound to be at 118 for 30 seconds. And that if it just stayed at 123, 124 the whole time, that would be better. Can you explain why it's a bad thing for having these little mini? I don't think it's, it, I actually am less worried about flash crashes than many people. It What it means is, my my guess anyway, and people, people seem to be guessing that it's an algorithmic trade that was, it was an overnight Asian markets, which is thinly traded. But it, yeah, so, uh, so it's just, it was just not a, that thinly traded. There was actually quite a lot of volume. Relative to other times. And, thing. and, you know, algorithmic is a, basically the new way of saying, you know, a price change and we don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> well, it also it probably is a bug in a in a, somebody's code. It might be a bug or it might be a feature. My um, guess true. is that um, the 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 FX market is by far the biggest and most liquid 
market in the world. And there's a lot of derivatives. It's, in fact, most of the FX market is not done in what's known as spot FX, which is the number which you're quoting here. It's done in derivatives and futures. And some of these derivatives are extremely complex. Yep. And one of the more common types of complex derivatives are these things called knock-in and knock-outs, where you, you know, where basically you make a lot of money or you lose a lot of money if a certain price goes below 120 ever. And so what happens is in the middle of the night, someone who'd written a knock-in, you know, sees an opportunity to sell a bunch of pounds, get it below 120 for 30 seconds, and then suddenly they're in the money on their knock And it was worth it. It cost them some money to do, but it was worth it for how much money they made. Exactly. It's po- totally possible. So on that note, actually, you know, the, the, the coding, my number is $8.7 billion, And that is the number of internet-connected devices that are currently in operation right now. And they're all in my house. Exactly. And, and you know... I feel I have, you know, a couple dozen. I, yeah. I, I can't believe yeah. that the ratio of internet-connected devices to people in the world is barely one-to-one. My 14-year-old like, like has seven half of those. To one? And it won't be. In, in about four years, it's supposed to be 21 billion. And be, oh, my God. Yeah, so that's about three like, times bigger, almost. Yeah, exactly. And, like, a little glitch in code, you know, can lead to 6% drop in, in the pound sterling or it can lead to, you know, everyone's coffee machine beginning percolating at 2 a.m. I mean, who knows? It's this, we're in this. That wrong. wouldn't be such a bad thing. That's like taco t- trucks in every corner. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. exactly. Okay more, okay more, more coffee and more tacos. This is, this is an internet connected. The future. Future. So, so my, my utopian vision of the internet connected future is 25 billion, which is the anticipated value in dollars of Snapchat when it goes public. As oh, now yeah. it looks, it is going to do. Which is something like 50 times its current Are revenues. you a Snapchatter? I love Snapchat so hard. Really? I love it. It's so much fun. It's like I'm, I was a late adopter because um, I'm, not, I'm not quite young enough to be snapping my friends. But I, the, the filters are like the best thing in the world. <laughs> I've been watching the, the um, presidential debates with the filter on so they can see um, the candidates with like, you know, as with dogs. As mice. Yeah. And, or as bunnies. And right. then when they open their mouth, it like sprays carrots. It just makes the entire thing endurable. Oh, and That's actually and a, a really s- good advertisement for that. <laughs> as a Snapchat user, Haley, you can tell us how often do you see ads on that platform? I'm, I don't think I've ever seen an ad um, yet. So I there's mean, basically no revenue. Well, they, they have revenue right now of um, a few hundred million dollars a year. And they are going, they claim that next year they're going to have a billion dollars of revenue. But this is still a crazy multiple of their revenue, yeah. let alone their profits. They don't have any profits. Right, right, right. Wow. It's yeah. a lot. Well, I don't. Maybe I'm not like the the target Snapchat user. Um, no, you're exactly the target Snapchat user because, you know, you're hard to reach and you're wealthy and you're wonderful and everyone wants texter. to reach you and you wrote a great book <laughs> and you wrote thank a great you. book so listen thank you to Haley. thank you to Viralyn williams the producer and to steve lichtai and andy bowers the executive producers find all of the panoply podcasts on itunes.com slash panoply subscribe to us send us emails our email address is slate money at slate.com And we will talk to you next week on Slate Money.